Well, good morning. Let's stand and read the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 9, 1 to 12. John 9, 1 to 12. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, and made clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to his eyes, and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated, sent. So he went away, and washed, and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors, and those who previously saw him as a beggar, were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who was called Jesus made clay, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Well, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Pray together. Father, thank you for the word that you've given us. And um, it was written 2,000 years ago, but it's still completely relevant for our culture and our time today. And we know that as a, as a body at Genesis House, but lots of people don't understand that, Lord. And I just pray, God, that your word would um, just translate into the hearts of the people here today so that we can then go to others and make them realize the significance of your word and how relevant it is to their lives and to our culture. If more people understood your way, Lord, we'd be living in a totally different place in terms of our morals, our ethics, and the way we treat each other. And I pray, God, that uh, we are transformed today in whatever way you have prepared for us and our hearts are changed so that we love you more and care for others more. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Chapter 9, uh, John. We're going back to John now for a while. Yeah, 9, uh, 1 to 12. Page 1567. Oh, Alright. Let's just dive right in. Uh, notice in verse 1 that it says this. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. Well, John doesn't give us the exact location and timing of the events here. Uh, when Jesus first encountered the blind man with the disciples, he doesn't also leave us with no clues either about what was kind of going on here in Jerusalem at the time. And I want to point out a couple of things to you. And I've already said one of them, that the first thing we know is that he was in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, we know this because uh, if we go back to chapter 7, uh, we'll see Jesus entering uh, Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. And that Feast of Tabernacles actually helps us with the timeline as well, because that was a feast that was held once a year in Israel, near the end of September to early October. So we know when he counted the blind man, he's in Jerusalem. We know it's around September, October. And we also know, because it's just after the Feast of Tabernacles ending, um, 
we know that um, uh, you know people have left the city most likely by now, or at least they're on their way out. So there were hundreds of thousands would have flocked, and either this is like maybe just the, the second day after the feast, or maybe it's a week later. But regardless, the city's started to empty out now, likely um, during this event. And of course, the Feast of Tabernacles was the most joyous feast in all of Israel, knowing, known for its water drawing rituals. Um, and his lighting rituals, and it was a, pre, a feast that celebrated uh, the past in Israel's history, uh, the, the deliverance from um, Egypt, and also the God's provision in the wilderness. It represented the present, and that they were thanking God for the last year of agricultural harvest that did, to just come in. And it was, a, it was a feast to remember the future, because these feasts were always pointed to the Messianic age when Jesus was eventually going to come. And so the, the feast had a past, present, and future component. And it's also the feast where Jesus spoke out those, those famous words where he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. This occurred the last day of the feast when the candles in the, like the court uh, were either just being put out or just being lit on the last day. It's an important phrase to remember him as the light of the world because in verse 5, he also says again, I am in the world. I am the light of the world. So he's, he's, he's uh, piggybacking off of the feast that just ended, and he's using the light phrase once again, familiar in the minds of the people in Israel. We also know to some degree where in Jerusalem this took place. We know it took place near the temple. How do we know this? Well, if you look at 859, it says, Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus had hid himself and went out of the temple. What happened here, Jesus has claimed to be God by saying, I am. I was born before Abraham. I existed before Abraham. The Pharisees didn't like that claim. And they went to huck stones at him to kill him. And Jesus got out of the temple quickly and hid himself. So we know that this event occurred outside the temple, not inside the temple. And we also know it is about five minutes, at maximum five minutes away walk from the temple. How do we know this? In verse 7, when Jesus tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam, the blind guy, after putting clay on his eyes, uh, we know by, by distance and location that the pool of Siloam was no more than five minutes walk from the temple. So somewhere between the temple and the pool of Siloam is a five minutes journey, max distance. So he could, this could have occurred anywhere along, along, those, uh, along that path. And the last thing we understand about the timing of events and what this would look like comes from verse 14. Because in verse 14 it says, Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So the Feast of Tabernacles has just ended, this long seven-day holiday, feast and festival. Now it's a Saturday, the Sabbath, and that's, of course, a weekly Jewish holiday, and it's a day of rest for the Jewish people. So this gives us a picture of what it was like in terms of when Jesus and the disciples encountered this blind fellow. So here Jesus was, downtown Jerusalem, outside of the temple, but in close proximity to it, on the Sabbath day, at the conclusion of the Feast of Festivals. And he and, this, he and his disciples passed by this blind fellow. And the first detail that John doesn't want to miss about this fellow is the state of his condition, how severe it was. Look at verse 1, it says there, he saw a man blind from birth. He was blind from birth. Not an accidental detail that John puts in there, by the way, because he wants us to understand the severity of the blindness. This is not a man who at one time could see, maybe up to about five or six years old, and then because of some kind of sickness or accident, he lost his sight. 
So it wasn't a progressive loss of sight where he had experienced the world. This guy was born in darkness. It was congenital. So he'd never seen color. Think about that. He'd never seen color. You could just talk to him about blue and green and he wouldn't understand what you're saying. He'd never seen his family's faces. He might have touched them and got an idea of what they looked like by their features, but never seen a face, never seen flowers, never saw the sea, never saw mountains, never experienced the temple in terms of its significance. And as a man, it's a very important thing. He never saw the beauty of a woman. Never got to experience that. And you men, if I had to take that away from you, you'd know with your wives and, your, and so on that that'd be a big tragedy for you. And if you're single, I know you're looking. <laughs> so this guy, all he knew was darkness. And the whole world to him was black. And again, it's intentional by John to make this detail obvious. Because he wants to give us a picture to leave us no doubt in the mind of the readers that are listening to him uh, from this passage. Understanding that this is nothing short of a pure miracle. No one could ever fault Jesus and say, well, you know what, that was a sleight of hand, or we knew he'd see it one time, so he, you know, they could have attributed faking or whatever, it wouldn't have mattered. It was clear by John that he was making it a point to say that everyone knew him as a blind guy. Uh, we know later on he's a beggar. We, the, his neighbors recognize him as that. So this guy was known for his destitute blindness. So this was a pure miracle, and John wants us to pick that up in verse 1. The blind man's conditions, though, his condition presented a theological issue and a dilemma for the disciples. Look at the dilemma for these guys in verse 2. They want to make sure uh, of what's going on in this guy's life. And they ask Jesus a question. They say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Strange question to us, don't you think? Could you imagine if you had a child and your child was born blind? Or, um, well, yeah, you had a child born blind, or you, were, you yourself were born blind, and someone came up to your parents or came up to you and asked, I just wanted to know, what did you guys do to tick God off? What do you mean? Well, you're born blind. I mean, that suffering that you've done must be because of God's fate in your life, your judgment. I mean, we know that personal sin and, tra- and tragedy and suffering, is, they're connected. So what did you do to cause this to yourself? Or, what did your parents do to cause this to yourself? I mean, you'd be offended as a Canadian. You'd be, you'd be super upset, especially if it was your children. Because you'd be like, what do you mean? Like, that? you can't like, attack my kids that way and attack me as a parent that way. Well, this is in essence what the disciples are saying. Who sinned that this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? So it seems, seems strange to us, but remember, they're Jewish and their worldview is different than ours. Their question likely came from their own personal understanding of scripture and history. Let me share this with you in Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. This is what God says to Israel. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. 
So we have scripture that they would have known that suggests that God punishes people and the, the sins and the parents are passed down to the kids. And if you look at history, who was in power in, in Israel at that time? Romans. Romans. The Romans were not supposed to be there. Israel was to be a self-governing, independent nation. And here they are under Roman rule. So if you're, if you're the disciples and you look at your history, you know you're supposed to be independent, but Rome is there. And what are you being, why is Rome there? Because you have disobeyed God throughout your history, and the only reason why a foreign nation runs you is because you were disobedient to God. If they, if they had never disobeyed the Lord, they would have never had foreign enemies encompassing their boundaries. In Exodus, God makes a promise. If you obey me, no nation will ever take your borders. So, they could have avoided all military um, oppression if they had just been obedient to God. So if you're there born into that generation, you'd be like, well, um, I'm suffering now because of the sins of my forefathers. And Romans here, it's not my fault, but I know it's the fault of my parents. So as an Israelite, you can see this. But more even importantly, um, fate, this idea of God's punishment for sin, and this idea of this fatalistic attitude was prevalent within their culture. And sin was a result of God, or God's judgment was a result of your sin. And a great passage to think about this is Job. Now what's interesting is Job is actually the oldest Bible, the oldest book in the Bible that precedes Genesis. That's the thoughts. Well, what's interesting is Job is a righteous man living a dream life. And guess what happens? He loses his family. His children and his wife die. His possessions and his property are destroyed. And he becomes incredibly sick. And his friends are completely perplexed by it. Completely perplexed. And when they enter into discussion with him, at the end of the whole book, here's their conclusion about Job. It's, well, actually, in chapter 4, this is the first conclusion. We all know that innocent people don't suffer, Job. Job's friends say, we know this. Innocent people don't suffer. And their conclusion at the end of the book was, so what did you do to take off God? Because this is clearly your own fault. You're not, you, must be, um, you must be guilty of something because you're suffering so badly. That's the conclusion in Job. And that's in Israel's history. Of course, nothing was farther from the truth. We know later why he was suffering. Because God allowed Satan to do that to him. And later, God rebukes his friends and basically gives them a lashing tongue lashing for the way their, their understanding and their support of Job and, the, and their understanding of who God was. So God came down on his friends and, and gave him help basically for their, their theological misunderstanding. So as you can see, this idea of personal suffering and one's own sin was rooted in Jewish thought and the disciples were likely ones to inherit this belief system, which is clear by their question. So it's part of their theology and their thinking, but it sure isn't part of Jesus's. How do we know? Because he answers them with this in verse 3. He says, if It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I don't know about you, but when I first read this passage, it made me very uncomfortable. And I'll tell you why. Because at first read, it sounds like God's character is put into question. Listen to this again. Jesus says this. It was neither that the man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, here's why the guy was born blind. It has nothing to do with sin. He was born blind so that God could then basically show off through him and basically uh, 
do this miracle through Jesus and, and make God look good. So the problem for me with that is that that means that God is responsible for his blindness, and so predestined him or preordained him to be blind, so that years later, like 20, 30 years later, when Jesus showed up, he could do this miracle and everyone would go, look, oh, God gets the glory for this healing of this blind man. That puts God's question into character for me, because that means he's, he's making men and women like a, like a pawn in a chess game, and creating them with these deficiencies and disabilities and dysfunctions so that he can later get glory through them. So for me, that puts God into question. But when I look at it closer at the text, I would suggest this is not what Jesus meant, even though it may read that way at first. I want to point out something to you. Do any of you guys have um, italics, two words in italics? The word, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was. Do you have it was in italics? Okay, so do I. It was is the people trying to Remember, Greek and English have different grammar and different language. When you see italic words added in the scripture, that is the people trying to make sense of the Greek grammar and trying to make sense of the sentence to make it flow better. But those italic words were not originally part of the Greek text. They weren't. So actually, it would read, it, it, it should read, neither this man sinned nor his parents, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. That's how it should read. Now that changes the translation. Can you see the difference? Because when, when you read it that way, the blindness has nothing to do with sin. The blindness is only an opportunity for God's glory now to be displayed in Him. Right? So I'll read it to you with. I'll read it to you in like in our how I think it's read in our modern day English, because I took out these italic words. But I'll read it to you in a, in a Okotokian uh, 2016 way. Okay. Here's how I think it translates, or how I know it translates. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but so that the works of God might be displayed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. In other words, he was born blind, guys, disciples. That's unfortunate. But we can use this opportunity of his blindness now to, to do something great for God so he gets glorified. Now what's awesome is when you read commentaries and other pastors and they see it the same way as you do because then it makes you feel like you're not off your rocker with the way you interpret text. And uh, I wanted to quote from you F.F. Bruce and he does a, he's more poetic in his language but listen to his conclusion, it's the same as mine but worded better because he's a scholar and I'm not. So this is F.F. Bruce. This does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born blind in order that after many years his glory should be displayed in the removal of the blindness. To think so would again be a, a smear on the character of God. It does mean that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that, when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and others, seeing his work, might turn to the true light of the world. And for me, that's a significant substantiation of the reading of the text. So there was an opportunity here, an opportunity to bring glory to God through the healing of this blind man, but there's also a deadline to do this in. And what's the deadline? Jesus tells us in verse 4 and 5, he says this, We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jeff, uh, Jesus' uh, reference to day and night here is not to be taken literally. Don't think of... It is daytime, meaning I've got to get this miracle done today, boys, because the sun's going down in five hours, and it's daytime. And when nighttime comes, 
I can't see, and so I'm basically powerless to do anything at nighttime. We have to go to sleep anyway, and all this type of stuff. Don't think of it that way. It's not a reference, day and night is not a reference to a literal time frame. It's a reference to his time on earth that remained with his disciples. The day and night is how much time, the day is a reference to this. Here's how much time, boys, I have between now to my crucifixion. The night time is the time after the crucifixion. Uh, basically, his time of departure. And he says to them, we, you and me and the disciples, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. So as long as I'm here, we got work to do. And it's going to be, you know, we got whatever this would be away from the crucifixion, if it's a year or two, whatever. And he says, we've got this short period of time. Night is coming when no one can work. And that was true. After Jesus died, for the next 50 days, there wasn't a single miracle in Israel. Like, you think about this, Jesus for three years virtually wiped out, like, I, I would suspect that daily, daily he did a miracle of healing or some kind of crazy stuff, like some, some supernatural thing in Israel, daily. I bet you it was almost daily. For three years, and we became norm to these guys. He goes and gets crucified, goes into the cross, the disciples go into hiding, and nothing in Israel is, no one's healed, nothing is done for 50 days. And then the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and then, G, and then they empowers him, and Peter kills, kills a lame man not so long, soon after that. So through, through the Holy Spirit's power, healings were possible to the apostle, apostles. But even then, they were rare compared to what Jesus was doing. So it's interesting that for 50 days, if you have miracles almost daily for three years, and next thing you know, he's gone, and it's nighttime, according to this reference, and nothing happens for 50 days until Peter does his first miracle. That's just a side tangent, but I thought it's interesting when you think, of, think about Jesus' words here. What's also significant, though, is here is his title of himself. He says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. We've seen this before in chapter 8, on the last day of the feast. He says, I am living water. But he says, and he also said back then, I am the light of the world on the last day of the feast. And he leaves this fantastic symbolism here, because here's this blind man from birth who's lived in darkness completely, and now all of a sudden, here's the light of the world coming to dispel this darkness in this guy's life. First in a physical way, and we're going to see later in a spiritual way, which will be next week's sermon. We'll leave the significance, though, of his light of the world statement to the end of the sermon, okay? But it's extremely important we understand that terminology for himself. So let's look at the miracle itself now. Bring us close to the end. So here's the miracle. After saying that he's light of the world, in verse 6 he says, <clears throat> He spat on the ground, and made clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to his eyes, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed, and came back seeing. Why did Jesus choose to heal in this way? Can you picture that scene, guys? Especially the guys. Jesus hawks a big loogie. Good sound effects, Roger. Proud of that. I wasn't actually going to do a demonstration, but you beat me to it. Demonstration. Thank you. I was going to get the I was going to get the guys to do all their best sound effects, but Jesus literally he hawks a big loogie on the ground, and then takes the clay with the loogie in it, mixes it up in his hands, and then wipes it on the, his eyelids like this on his eyes, and that was his way of healing. Well, his eyes, but I'm guessing the guy probably closed his eyes. I mean, I don't know. Maybe he did. That's a good question. Maybe I should refrain that observation. He definitely wiped it on his eyes. 
whether he had his lips closed enough or not, we don't know. Well, because he wouldn't see Jesus' hands going, so he may not have closed his lips. That's right. It might have been a quick reaction. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I do have shades on, yeah. That's right. Well, black people have, like, heightened other senses. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, regardless, you guys can play this out in your minds of how this might have looked. And uh, so he hawks a big loogie, mixes this, mixes this up, and he does this. So why did he do it this way? Well, I was, I had a bunch of things in here to suggest why. I thought, you know, what's taking away from the, the passage in terms of like the whole feel for it. So I have a couple ideas. If you want to talk about a discussion. We'll do that, but for the sake of time of the, the passage, let's just move on. But commentaries did leave a couple of suggestions, but none of them were like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Concise, and uh, they were all suggestive. They weren't, no one was slam dunking the, the observations. But regardless, could you imagine what this must have been like? I mean, imagine when the guy walked down to the pool of Salon with clay in his eyes, and he washes. And all of a sudden, like, he opens his eyes and the clay falls off from the water. And next thing you know, he can see. I mean, Janice just had laser eye surgery about two months ago. And when she came home, all she could say to me, like, over and over was, I can't believe it, I can't believe it. She was in constant amazement how she went from basically virtually blind to, like, getting some laser eye surgery, getting this flat foot in her eye. And she could read license plates across the street in her yard that I couldn't even see. So she, her vision's better than mine, but she, was, she couldn't believe after laser eye surgery how amazing it was and how exciting it was to read things she could never have read for years, and she couldn't stop smiling and grinning. But she wasn't blind, and she'd seen all of her life, she did, and she had glasses to help her. This guy, for the first time in his life, could put a face to familiar voice. He could see the color of the water in the pool of Siloam, and he could get for the first time a glimpse of the magnificent temple that, that Herod had built. This must have been an unbelievable moment for this guy that day. And we're only left to speculate his reactions because John doesn't tell us exactly what he said or felt at the pool that, that, that uh, afternoon or morning or evening, whatever time it was. But what does John tell us? He actually doesn't tell us the reactions of him, but he does tell us the reactions of his friends and his neighbors and his family or people that were strangers to him. Like there's, different, there's different mixed reactions to him in verse 8 and 9. The neighbors speak first. They said, therefore the neighbors and those who were previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. So others were saying, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. I'm the guy. It shouldn't be surprising to us that their reactions to him were mixed um, because um, verse 8 gives a grim description of what this man was like. Remember, he says here he was a beggar. So we don't know how long he was begging for, but he was the guy that you would pass on the street with the cardboard sign saying, with a cup rattling, saying, can you spare some change? He might have been laying on a mat or, or sitting, uh, sitting down, but regardless, they knew him. What he was known for was being a beggar, destitute. And here he was now, functioning like a normal guy in Jewish society. How could this be the same guy? Especially because of what the man, this blind guy, says later on in verse 32, which we're going to see next week. This is what he says about the situation. He says, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. In Israel, no one in history, the Old Testament included, had ever been restored from blindness. 
It's no wonder the mixed reactions, thinking he, there were, he was a, he was, there was a body double that looked like him, or it was a different person altogether. There was a sparse group, though, that did believe, right? In verse 9 it says, no, but he is, like, or sorry, there was a people that said, um, that they actually believed that he actually was their real guy. There's a small group, and they had a question for him. They did think he was the same guy, but they wanted to know something. So in verse 10 they say, how then were your eyes opened? If you're the same man, how did your, how did your eyes go from blindness now to full vision? Well, the answer was, the man who's called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And then he went away and washed and received sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? And he says, I have no, basically, I have no clue. I don't know. Two things of the significance here. First of all, first of all, observation-wise, the, the blind man who was now healed, his understanding of Jesus was very limited. He didn't know where he was, for starters. But secondly, most importantly, he said, notice what he calls him? He says, the man who is called Jesus. He's not, at this point, he's not a prophet. He's not the Messiah. He's just a regular Joe Blow. Sorry if your name is Joe in here. But he's a regular Joe Blow, and all he is is a man to him. And Jesus, from what we can see, never revealed his identity to him. And, um, like I said, because he was blind, he, could never, he couldn't uh, basically make anything else different out of Jesus anyway. Even if he passed him on the street, he wouldn't have recognized him. Unless Jesus was speaking, he might have known his voice. And this is significant that he recognized him only as a man. Because next week, we're going to see a completely under, different understanding transpire with this guy. There's going to be a full revelation in this man to, to understand Jesus as his Savior. And we're going to deal with that. The second thing I want you to notice is that even though he didn't fully understand Jesus' true identity, right, he was only a man to him, he was still willing to trust him and obey him with what little information he had. Again, there's no reference here to Jesus saying, I'm putting the clay on your eyes and I'm sending you to the pool of Siloam so that you'll be healed from blindness. You notice that in the text? There's no promise of healing to him. He runs into him, and he he basically makes the he makes the claim he's the light of the world, and he bends down or stands up or whatever, and puts uh, the stuff on his eyes and just says, "Go and wash." He didn't promise him healing. He didn't tell him what he's even doing. But the guy just took Jesus at his word and took a faith step, a small faith step of the little things that he knew about him, and trusted him and went and washed. And the results, of course, were miraculous. In other cases of Jesus healing blind people, in the Bible, he, uh, he enters into dialogue. He'll say to blind people, do you want to see? He has conversations like that. There's nothing like that in here. And again, we're going to see next week that this blind man is going to encounter Jesus once again, and he's going to impact him in a profound, life-changing way. So what are some of the lessons that we can pick up from this passage today? I want to look at it from two views. One, I want you to understand what it would like to look at the lessons from John if you were a Jew 2,000 years ago. And I want to deal with a couple things in our culture today, 2,000 years later. You can't understand the scriptures in our context unless you understand the scriptures first in their context. 
And the lessons are actually going to be a little bit different for us versus for them, for, 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 for what they were to understand. But here's the first lesson. Lesson one is this. Through the healing of the blind man, Jesus was declaring to the Jewish people that he was the fulfillment of Israel's hopes. And I put here in brackets, he was their long-awaited Messiah and was God among them. And I'm going to explain this in, in good detail so, you, understand. so you, if you don't see it now, you'll see it then. A verse and passage has been quoted a lot in our church uh, since the start of the book of John. I'll remind you of John's intent writing the book. He says, These signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, Jew, 2,000 years ago, um, and first century Christians, or Jewish people, or Gentiles, I've written these things about Jesus' miracles, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have belief in His name. Now, for that, us in this church today, you're not believing in Christ because you, you're reading this miracle. Right? So you have to understand that if you're a Jew, and you, and you encounter this material, and you read this about Him, you're to recognize that He's the Messiah and God. So how would you come to those conclusions by what he did? And this takes a little bit of extra work. But this is crucial if you're falling asleep because you're tired. This is important to, to wake up for. <laughs> crucial to understand that in the Old Testament, there's no record of any person ever being healed of blindness. How come all the fathers are laughing at me? <laughs> Crucial to understand, there's no record of any person being healed of blindness in the Old Testament. Yet, in the Old Testament, the giving of sight to the blind was associated with power only God had and the Messiah to come. Okay? You catch that? Never healed in the Old Testament, like verse 32, never has a person ever been recovered from blind. But it was a sign of only God's power and the Messiah. And I'm going to give you the passages to prove it. Just in case you think you've never heard this before. Exodus 4.11. The Lord said to him, now this is, oh, this is Moses, by the way. God says, Moses, you're going to lead Israel out of Egypt. Moses says, ah, I'm slow in speech. I'm, I'm not the guy. I'm like a big dummy, which is completely opposite. He was, he was an intelligent man, trained in Pharaoh's court. But he's giving God excuses. And God says this to Moses in rebuttal to him. The Lord said, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, Moses, you know this about me. The only person that can give a person a mouth and an ability to speak or make them deaf or blind or see is me. And you know that. And that's, that's one of his rebuttals to him. So the, a Jewish person knew this is power that only belonged to God. Okay? Another great passage is this one in Psalm 146, 8. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Again, this is David. I think it's David who wrote this one. Um, he, he's praising God in, in his, you know, probably as he's you know, going through life like he did before he was king. And he's writing this psalm and he says, the Lord gives sight to the blind. So a Jewish person understood this. And then even more importantly now, when Jesus stands in, in the temple or in the synagogue in his hometown and he opens Isaiah, he quotes this passage. This is Jesus now in Luke 4.18. This is a quote of Isaiah. 
Isaiah 61 from Jesus, but quoted in Luke 4 for our benefit. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery for sight of the blind. So God was the only one that could open the eyes of the blind. And the Messiah, here's how you know the Messiah has come. Blind people are going to start seeing. Okay? So as a Jewish person, when he does this miracle, they were to recognize this is God-powered. And this is the Messiah here now. It was a testimony to them that he was right. And that's why John in chapter 20 can say, by the way, guys, I wrote this so that you will believe that he is the Son of God. Because if you're a Jew in that world, you with those scriptures, you get that. Well, you should get that. But they didn't for various reasons. And we're going to look at next week the responses to this healing and how they all had mixed reviews towards him. Okay? But there's one more really important thing here. Back to the light reference. I'm the light of the world. So not only was the healing of the blind a statement to be God and Messiah, the healing, the claim to be light was a statement of being God and Messiah. I'll give you the passages. God is light. Alright? Isaiah 60, 19, just as one reference. There's multiple. This is what Isaiah says. The sun will no, will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Light was something attributed to the Lord Yahweh. Only God had, was, was given that title. But then the Messiah was to be called the light as well. In Isaiah 42, 6, look at this. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. Now you is a reference to Jesus. So I, God, Yahweh, I have called you, Jesus, in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. And open the eyes of the blind. <laughs> I love that passage because the blind and the light are in the same, are in the same text. Finally, this event occurs at the Feast of Booths. And some think it occurs at Hanukkah, but regardless, it doesn't matter because both, rich, both feasts have lamp-lighting rituals. And again, what, is the feast, what are these rituals, are these feasts celebrating? They're celebrating God's provisionary care and salvation and, and future deliverance for Israel. And Jesus says, I'm the fulfillment of your feast. I am the one who took care of you in the wilderness. I am the one who delivered. I'm taking care of you now. I will take care of your future. I am God's full. I, I am. I am the light. I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the fulfillment of your hopes. Now we're going to see again. Next week, the blind man got that. But the mixed multitude didn't. And the leaders didn't. Okay? That's, so that's a, this is so important you understand this because... You can use the feasts of John to understand what's actually going on uh, by Jesus' claim. <coughs> so what's the contemporary issues? How do we solve, how, what, what do we learn as a church here? I'll give you the lesson and explain what I mean. Suffering and illness is not necessarily a result of personal sin or lack of faith. Where do I get this? Um, it was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but it was so the works of God might display. Because the disciples say, why is this guy suffering? He must have sinned. Our lesson for us is that people today who suffer and have illness are not necessarily a result of personal sin. And, and I added, or lack of faith. Why lack of faith? 
Because in our churches, we don't really have people going around saying, we know why you're sick, it's because you're a sinner. Or we know why you're sick or you're suffering because your parents made you this way. But we have something very close. And I know one of you in particular has told me this experience. Even though the Christian community does not go around blaming each other's health issues because of sin, we do do this to each other in certain sects. We believe that we have certain health issues and it's a lack of our, our suffering because we lack faith. Have you ever heard that? Has anyone, have any of you ever heard this? The reason why you're not gotten better is because you actually lack faith. You're not getting healed because you lack faith. So while we have something very similar to what the, the disciples are saying, they must be because of sin that they're sick, and we have people in our church that say it's because of lack of faith that you're sick. I've dealt with that in my own life. I have two, two friends, and Stuart knows who they are, that believe that you, your faith is direct correlation to your health. So are you never going to die? Pardon me? Are you never going to die? That's, that's the logical conclusion when you play it out, yeah. But anyway, it's crazy. But that there are church people that go around. So the problem is they go around saying, you have health issues, and if you only had enough faith, you'd be healed. So that person takes a prophetic role. Because they're, they're, they're declaring that I'm a prophet, and the reason why you're not better is because of, because of your faith. They never stop to consider that the reason why they're, they're, the lack of healing occurs in a person's life is because they're a false prophet, and God never promised these things in the first place. But it results in spiritual abuse for those who are never healed. But Jesus had to, had to fix their worldview. Sin has nothing to do with illness. And the same correlation in our church. Listen, people, those of you who are Christian or, or so-called Christians that are telling people they're sick because they're not having enough faith, you, are, you need your worldview radically shifted from under your feet because Jesus has not promised that. And the third lesson, and I didn't... I probably I didn't have enough time to think about how to word this properly, so deal with the, deal with it even though it could be better. Is one's understanding of Jesus does not have to be a determining factor in our willingness to trust and obey His word. You saw that, right? This guy, Jesus, is a man. That's it. He doesn't understand who he is, but he still in the in the small things that he asks him to do. He, he asked him to trust him, basically, and go do it, and the guy obeyed. And look at the outcome. Not only did he see, but he's going to become, a, basically, in our, in our words, a Christian in next week's sermon. Now, this is a relevant message to all of us, no matter where you're at in your faith. If I were to sit down with all of you and interview you, and, or, you know, that sounds very formal, but, and ask you, tell me about who you think Jesus is, I'm going to get not a single person answering me the same way. Because I'd say, what do you think Jesus says about this? And you're going to give me your understanding about Jesus in a certain category of life. And the, the, you're going to have various responses to who he is. But this lesson is inescapable for us, and it's, it's awesome for us, because there are things in our lives right now, even though we don't fully understand necessarily who he is, that he's asking us to do. He's got full of Salome things for us to do. And he's asking us to walk to the pool of Siloam in different areas of our life. And if we could take a lesson from this guy, we'd say this. He just trusted him at his word and was willing to obey him without a full understanding of who Christ is. And I think that, that, that we can learn from this guy and say, you know what, we know a lot more than this guy does, but we still may refuse to obey him in the little things that he know, we know he's asking us to do now. 
And I'm sure if I were to ask you, what do you think the Lord has been prodding at you in your heart or your mind or in your time in Scripture? What's he pointing out? And the question is, have you taken the time and the willingness to trust him and take those full, small faith steps? And again, doing that led to a fuller understanding of who Jesus says. And with us too, when we obey the Lord in this way, I guarantee we'll know the Lord differently in the outcome if we trust him. But we have to be willing to walk to the fullest alone. For him, it was a five-minute journey. And for us, it might be a five-minute thing we have to do with someone else. Maybe he's asking us to deal with forgiveness. Or he's asking us to pay back a debt. Or do something which might take five minutes. Or maybe it's something where it'll take months. But regardless, we all have our, our walk with the Lord.